Yahoo! <laughs> Welcome to Yell Parks Pod, the number one podcast for yelling about parks. Um, I'm Ola. I use EM or they them pronouns. I'm Nick. I use they them. And we have some fun guests with us. Uh, I'm Adam. I use he they pronouns. And I'm Alex. I also use he they pronouns. And the reason that we have these uh, special guests today is we are talking about a park that is local to them, across the pond, as they say. We are talking about Dartmoor National Park, which is uh, located in the southwest of England. It is mostly hilly, open moorland. I've been told it's very, it can get very rainy there. It was designated as a national park on the 30th of October in 1951. The original mission was to safeguard areas of national interest against development and uh, spoilation and to remove means of access to pedestrians to areas or to improve means of... Did I say, it, I yeah, yes. The opposite, huh? Okay. It was meant to improve the access to, to pedestrians to areas of natural beauty and to promote measures for protection of flora and fauna. I believe it, we're going to discuss this further with Adam and Alex. I think our first topic is about what it's like there. What? So you both have uh, been there, right? You've You're in the area. You've visited quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah, yeah we've spent time yeah. there. <laughs> Yeah, why don't you tell us a bit about that? Do you want to go first, Adam? You're you're a bit more local than I am. I think you spent more time there than I have. I, I've spent a lot of time there, but that was a <laughs> fair number of years ago, so I'm having to go back through the memory. Um, it's fairly hilly because it's um, very... What is it? It's a granite outcropping underneath the main topsoil so as things erode away the granite is left which leaves massive hills which are built on top of that thing so it's craggy everywhere lots of valleys but then there is just all the open moorland between which is just flat expanse as far as you can see um there's some ancient woodland there um protected in the almost geographical center like some of the most ancient bits of woodland really old oaks and things um i want to say it's called wisman's wood i can't quite mm. remember off the top of my head i think it is now i've just had to google it because if we have more land here in the u.s we don't call it that what i thought from the name was that it was it was like a swampy but it's actually apparently more like grassland. Yeah, but plains and heath. Yeah, like when when the heather springs up and it, you have fields of just like purple where days before it was green and yellow. <laughs> like that's beautiful to see, but that lasts only about two weeks. And yeah. There are, I think there are some peat bogs out there as well. I think someone was investigating that and they went down a rabbit hole of um, <laughs> bogs and things. Sure was. So in terms of uh, the grasslands, a really good way of, of putting it like at first glance, it's just like, um, yeah, like between the, the crags and the tours and the valleys and the woodland, there is what looks like an expanse of grassland. When you get up close, a lot of it is peat bog. Um, which is kind of like layers of waterlogged sort of sphagnum moss and then like I guess things like bulrushes and things like that um, and you realize quite quickly that what you thought was sort of solid ground with grass on top is actually quite treacherous bog in many places um, but it is really variable and as Adam says you can get heather springing up and you get gorse bushes and all sorts it's um, sometimes you don't really know till you're right up close what exactly it's going to look like underfoot um, which is quite cool. Yeah the I've I've fallen into a peat bog once or twice. <laughs> yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Like hiking across the moor and 
you, you're going in a group and everyone's like stepping on a particular rock but then you've got five people in front of you who've just taken exactly the same step and then you're the sixth one on it and it's just it just gives up goes out under you and you just fall into <laughs> that's like um you know growing up i always thought quicksand was going to be a bigger problem for me it sounds like it's a real problem for you <laughs> <laughs> it, it is out there yeah how deep is it like how far down do you go that was the one i fell into wasn't too bad i i mean it's as you say it's not too deep i i fell basically face first so i was just laying in it and i managed to stand up and it was about (laughs) knee height but (laughs) okay so i've heard rumors when i was reading up about these things um so fox tour which is the supposedly the most like notorious bit of bog although other research told me that it's kind of overstated as a risk. But anyway, um, there are rumours or reports that it could be up to 20 feet deep. So obviously, if you get stuck in there and you can't be pulled out, then 20 feet is going to be a big problem for anybody of, well, any human. So um uh, and even if that's exaggerated, I'm sure, you know, certainly deeper than any person is tall, um, which is... Uh, kind of scary mm-hmm. yeah definitely scary yeah that's very like creepy cool <laughs> what sort of things does the park do to like keep people safe as they're walking through like what um do they have those areas marked or so there are there's a lot of warning signs on the moor because it's used by the ministry of defense as live firing ranges in areas so they're pretty good with signposting dangerous areas. That's a whole nother danger. Um, especially. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like, if if they are committing live-firing exercises, there are flags up and warnings are done before you, before you go and visit. Um, but then for the more natural things, like peat bogs, hidden mine shafts and stuff, it's hard to know exactly where all of it is, so it's more keeping people alert of what is out there because i don't think you can signpost every single Mm -hmm. incident of a bog or whatever is there probably not yeah that this sounds like a really cool and unique place honestly i think we're gonna talk later about a lot of the unique ecology there and we touched on um some of the human impact already but i think we wanted to touch on the uh, geology a, a little more about um how did it get to be this this weird sort of more bogland or uh, this craggy sort of area? So I've been reading a, a little bit about this and it's interesting because it kind of touches on, I did an archaeology degree many years ago uh, and uh, it got me thinking actually about the way that humans kind of create to a large extent some of these these landscapes, like the, the unspoilt landscape. Mm-hmm would be slightly different to how it looks now but that doesn't necessarily mean that what we have now isn't incredibly precious from an ecological perspective because a lot of the human impact happened so long ago that there's been enough time for these um these ecological systems to to um, build up so i mean i can talk i can talk a little bit about just how it was formed like geologically and a, a little bit about how the human impact has, has uh, shaped it, if that's helpful, um, in, in what I hope is the right amount of detail. Yeah, please. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. Please do. Cool. So, um, well, the, the origins of, of Dartmoor, are, um, they actually date back. And geological time is so cool. Um, you know, we think of a couple of thousand years being a long time, but... Um, the seeds for Dartmoor were sown about 280 million years ago. Um, and Adam mentioned earlier that it was it's a granite um, formation. And basically 280 million years ago, the area of land that's now, uh, the part of the plate that's now Dartmoor um, was roughly at the equator. And there were these super volcanoes and they formed these granite domes known as batholiths. So uh, basically just enormous, they just spewed up huge amounts of, of rock um, that formed these domes. And around the edges, you got all sorts of cool like metamorphic actions because it kind of extruded all the way through all of the um, existing stone. So you've got this like granite in the middle, um, sort of Devonian rock 
around the outside and then you've got these crazy metamorphic rocks are all sort of in a ring around mm-hmm. um it also deposited a whole load of minerals so uh, tin copper kaolinite that sort of thing um which plays a big part in the, the human history of the park um so you've got this big dome of granite and then continental drift moved the whole landmass northwards and away from the plate margins um and then there were no further like major volcanic impacts at all so over time, and this is hundreds of millions of years, um, the landscape kind of changed from this big granite dome to what we what we see today. And a lot of that is to do with um, the way that the rocks cooled. So you've got this, it wasn't just a big solid lump of granite, you've got, um, it was formed, it was very hot at the time, and then it cooled very rapidly, and it caused cracks to run all the way through. Um, so the rocks fractured and, and there's a process called jointing. So it turned into kind of broadly rectangular, like cuboid bits of, of granite. Um, and then there were different like areas. There's some, some bits higher than others. And then in between, um, plants took hold, the root structure and the drainage and everything caused the lower land bits to fracture even more than the, the upland bits. A lot of that rock was washed away. So you, you're getting like high, high points and low points. And then the more that happened, the more the high points got exaggerated. And just by chance, um, some see if you imagine the rock as like being a series of cuboid rocks stacked on top of each other, some of those rocks are going to be a, a neater fit and they're going to be bigger individual rocks than others. So mm. the ones that fit together really neatly, really tightly with big structures tend to survive while the rest of them kind of like just roll down the hill into the valley and then get broken up and washed away. So those bits are um, come to be what's known as tors on Dartmoor, the most famous geological feature. Mm. So if you look at a tor, you'll see it's actually, it looks like it's made out of, it's all, they, they look almost human made, like stacks of rock on top of each other. Oh, oh yeah, they really do. So is this, is this how, how would you spell? T-O-R. And apparently it comes from the old Welsh TWR, meaning cluster or heap. So there we go. Ah, yeah. that's neat. So they're sometimes individual rocks, but they're usually these stacks of cuboid rocks on top of each other. And they've survived, even though their neighbours would have been exactly the same. They've just, the jointing is a bit tighter, the rocks are a bit bigger, and they've survived when everything else has, has kind of eroded away. That sounds incredible. And you mentioned that there was a big human impact later on um, on the the lands of the park itself. Can you talk a little more about that? Yeah, so, and, and uh, Adam uh, or anyone else, please do jump in um, at any point. But um, so, yeah, continuing my research. Um, so this, one of the th- things that I really remember from my degree is uh, one, of, one of the lecturers saying, basically, moorland is kind of a human invention. And there's only a few spots, and it's a little bit controversial topic and a controversial take, but there's apparently only a couple of spots up in like the north of Scotland where it's always been moorland because it's been too wet for trees essentially to grow. Um, mm-hmm. But what happened was essentially um, over time, because the climate change process happened very slowly until recent times, um, the the land got kind of wetter and warmer Um and trees grew all the way up to way above what the tree line is now. Mm. And that kind of happened gradually. It couldn't happen like on its own, like in a short space of time, but over the course of thousands of years, um, it, the, the area became forested. And then basically, um, when people started um, really living in the area, um, kind of full time, as it were, um, so in about the Mesolithic period, about 10,000 BCE, about 12,000 years ago, um, the the people actually started cutting trees down. Um, and part of that was for, um, for wood to build things out of, I guess, or make fires. Um, but part of it was just to, um, to cut, like, like slash and burn agriculture. So um, if you cut down a clearing, burn all the trees, um, that soil is incredibly fertile for a short period. It doesn't need um, fertilization, so you can grow crops in it until the land like gives up, basically, and then you go and clear another patch. So they were doing that, um, and they were also creating little clearings to make it easier to hunt, because then they could wait around the edges and wait for the deer or, or whatever animals to come into the middle and then shoot them or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. So 
deforestation started as long ago as 7000 BCE. Um, so it essentially, after the last ice age, which was about 10,000 BCE, um, the whole area was covered, so there weren't any trees there. The area had about 2,000 2, years to forest, and then immediately humans started deforesting it again. And it's quite complicated, but essentially um, what happens is if you deforest a, a wet area like Dartmoor really quickly, what happens is um, the trees were previously draining water through transpiration. And if you cut the trees down, they can't do that anymore. So other plants move in that like waterlogged soils a little bit more. They tend to produce acid, so it makes it harder for trees to grow in the future. So if you deforest an area really quickly, when it's an area of high rainfall, you're going to create essentially moorland. And that's what's happened in this case. So probably most parts of the moor couldn't actually be forested now if we tried, because they are just too acidic and too waterlogged. Hmm. That's really interesting. It reminds me a lot about how we talk about with parks in the U.S. a lot of the time um, about, you know, humans being a part of the ecosystem and how when we forcibly remove the people who were living there, it does change the ecosystem and it changes the the land and as they had been using and changing it. And it's cool to see in uh, different nations there's also evidence of humans being a part of and changing the land in that way yeah yeah definitely um it humans and dartmoor are completely synonymous um in in quite in quite a cool way um sometimes a sad way um but it's still quite interesting Mm -hmm. i mean the amount of standing stones they've left around there from bronze age time is like fun to see right that's another evidence of uh human life and impact and history in the area uh did you have more to to say on that uh again yeah so um so basically we're 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 kind of in the in the mesolithic time so going um going to about um 4500 bce um and it's quite interesting we we don't know an awful lot about what people did or looked like or anything on Dartmoor at the time but um it's uh it's partly because Mesolithic people didn't really build settlements um or at least we don't know of them particularly um there's there's one kind of example up in Yorkshire where they seem to have built some structures but they probably just like seasonal like not really for living in long term but um in a place called Cheddar, which is only about 75 miles away, there are actually preserved cave remains from early Mesolithic people. And um, what's really interesting is those those people were um, were actually dark skinned and, and, and blue eyed, or at least they genetic tests of some of the skeletons there. Um, so there was a wave of human occupation in, in the southwest of England that actually predates um, the, the the people that are the ancestors of people that live in in Britain today. Um, so there were waves of migration going on far, far longer than we, we ever thought, um, which is, I think, incredibly cool. And it actually caused, it was quite, um, it caused quite a stir at the time when this research was published about three or four years ago, because um, people just assumed that the kind of Neolithic settlers were, you know, the, the first people really. And then, yeah, so in the Neolithic, people came in, um, mainly from kind of like the Eastern Mediterranean. They brought farming skills. They cleared land properly um, to actually uh, raise animals, grow crops. Um, they built structures like to live in for the first time. Um, and they also started, as, as Anna mentioned, like putting up like monumental architecture, like chambered tombs, like big stone stone structures and some of them um like funerary some of them just purely ritual um and they they're all over all over the moor um you can see them you can see them everywhere and it's they've just lasted there's something about that particular landscape that really made people um express themselves in kind of a spiritual way um in this monumental architecture that's so neat that's really cool I was also looking the uh, the Cheddar Man that you mentioned. Um, he apparently is also the oldest almost complete s- 
skeleton of our species ever found in Britain, which is also very neat. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, and whilst he isn't Dartmoor, um, he's really close. I mean, 75 miles is nothing. So it's, it's impossible to imagine that his kind of family or people he knew or people that he's descended from or something weren't kind of living on the moor like in a similar way to to him to him so yeah i thought that was really cool and i believe our the the next thing we wanted to touch on was more of the unique ecology of the area yeah yeah we talked about uh how this this moorland formed and how how unique it is to the area um what kind of ecology and uh and life has has sprung up around in this in this unique area yeah well i did a little bit of research specifically about well one bogs and two uh critters (laughs) found in dartmoor we love critters love critters big animal fan (laughs) Mm -hmm. um so there's a group called the dartmoor's little five um, which consists of the cuckoo uh, marsh fritillary, which is a species of butterfly, uh, the Eurasian otter, and the ash black slug. Um, and I'll talk a little bit more about these, but I'm curious. Have you guys ever seen, like, otters or any of these other species, like, as you have visited Dartmoor? Um, I know there is an otter sanctuary in the south like south of the park at the moment i nearly visited last year but um weather got in the way (laughs) um uh as to the other critters i don't think i've seen any i have seen like various snakes and things like uh, but i couldn't tell you quite what they were because we saw them and went nope run the other way (laughs) (laughs) very fair Yeah, I haven't knowingly seen any of the any of those sort of five. Um, how do you describe them? Big five or little five? Just a little guy. Little five. Little five. Um, so I, d- I mean, maybe I've seen them, but um, no. But they are obviously um, products of a of a completely unique ecosystem. Yeah. Yeah. No. The the little five name is a play on the like african big five so like the big you know elephant whatever species that are over there that's not our episode we're doing today but um yeah i have some little tiny facts about these guys um so the cuckoo is a bird for those who don't know um and it's the bird that all cuckoo clocks imitate um and they are actually one of the most well-known brood parasites. So what that means is that they don't hatch or raise their own chicks. Instead, they lay them in the nest of an unsuspecting bird of another species. Um, So then that bird then, you know, hatches the egg, takes care of it. Um, And then the cuckoo chick is frequently the only one of the brood to hatch as it typically hatches quicker than its other nest mates. And then it tosses other eggs out of the nest, which that's a concept I was not familiar with. I didn't know about brood parasites, but that is very interesting. Yeah, it's upsetting when you think about all the other birds, but I mean, that's how they've, that's how they do. Yeah. And then the marsh fertility is a species of butterfly. Um, it's threatened all across Europe, and so it is the subject of several conservation f- efforts. Um, similar to the Eurasian otter, um, so it is a charismatic species of the weasel family. Um, it's considered a European protected species as they were facing a rapid decline in numbers up until the 1980s when things began to improve with the Wildlife and Countryside Act of 1981, um, which then caused both better legal protection and also the banning of specific pesticides that, you know, caused them to be poisoned. Um, And since then, their numbers have been recovering, and they're generally considered a conservation success story. Um, Even though their status... Yeah. Do you have something to say about that? I I looked these guys up. Um, they are in fact very charismatic. Uh, they're very cute. Mm-hmm. 
They really are. They're very <laughs> cute. They look they look mostly like North American otters, but a little bit pointier, I think. They they, they smell like the one thing like you look at them, you go, they are so adorable. I'd like to like cuddle them and pet them. But having seen groups of them from like quite close distance, they like there is a particular smell on them, and it's not. Uh, they it's are. Not <laughs> they are mustelids, aren't they? Yeah, they are. Yeah, they mustelids are. all stink. That's. I think that's how they got their name. Mm. Oh, interesting. That would make sense. Mustelid means stinky. Means stinky. <laughs> I have to look that up. Stinky otter. I looked it up, and mustelid doesn't actually mean stinky. It's just that mustelids are stinky. So if it means stinky, it's because of the mustelids, not the other way around. It's it's hmm. mustelids do tend to be stinky, but the must in mustelid does not refer to their scent. I thought that it might, but it doesn't. Okay, sorry, okay. that was a little tangent. That's that's great. We're here for tangents. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um. I will also say that as I was doing research about them, just about every single article mentioned their poop. Um, specifically, they have... Hold on. I didn't take notes on this because I was like, we're not going to talk about otter poop on the podcast, but we are. Yeah, um, got to be done. It was only a matter of time, wasn't it? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> of course. Sorry, y'all. But yeah, they have a specific name. What is the specific name? Oh, it's called a Sprint. Um, and apparently it smells really weird. Some people evidently really like how it smells and compares it compare it to violets. Um, I can't say I've ever smelt it, so I don't know. <laughs> I can't give my opinion on what it smells like. But supposedly because of their like fishy diet, it's got a weird smell. Yeah. It's weird enough that it has its own name. So, you know, just in case you yeah. wanted to know. So, yeah. So, the last species of the Dartmoor. Oh, I'm sorry. There's also the blue ground beetle, who I totally forgot to mention because I only <laughs> listed four earlier. But, yeah, the let's start with the blue ground beetle. Um, it's the largest and rarest beetle in the UK. Um, they have a neat little metallic blue exoskeleton, and they are actually able to follow slime trails to find their fa favorite prey, which is the ash black slug, uh, another one of Dartmoor's Little Five. Um, mm. And a little bit about the ash black slug. Um, it's the world's largest terrestrial slug. Um, it can grow up to 25 centimeters, which is almost 10 inches. Um, and it has a history of use within folk medicine, which is really cool. So, in fact, at the Pitt Rivers Museum in Oxford, there's a jar that contains an ash black slug impaled on a thorn. Um, the museum purchased this in 1898, and the jar came with an instructional, instructional label that read, Charm for Warts, Oxfordshire. Go out alone and find a large black slug. Secretly rub the underside on the warts and impale the slug on the thorn. As the slug dies, the warts will go. So, if you got warts, uh, supposedly, <laughs> there was a belief that the ash black slug could help you fix that. Wow. I might have seen it. I've been to the Pitt Rivers Museum a few times. Uh, so I have to, Really? Next time I'm there, I'll have to check it. I used to live in Oxford, so um, yeah, it was one of my one of my local museums so uh, yeah i obviously didn't pay any attention at the time but the next time i'm there i'll, I'll keep an eye out where's the slug <laughs> bring me the slug <laughs> yeah i demand pictures actually yeah forget the dinosaur bones and the dodo foot um it's the slug that i want to see yeah 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 supposedly the slug in the jar now looks white as opposed to black just through its preservation yeah. uh tactics um but yes, if you do go, I do want to see a picture. <laughs> and yeah, so that's the little five. Very cool. I think they're cool. Yeah. Um, I also did a little bit of research on um, bogs for carbon sequestering. So I'm just going to keep on talking unless somebody stops me. <laughs> but <laughs> No, go ahead. I'll go ahead. Let's go. Okay, so for people who may not know carbon sequestering, what that means is essentially 
all the carbon in the air, um, which greatly impacts global warming, um, is essentially held um, in the, in this case, in the bogs, so that it can't go out, it can't contribute to global warming, etc., etc. So, a fun little fact, known peatlands only cover about 3% of the world's land surface, but store at least twice as much carbon as all of Earth's standing forests. That's, that's a fair amount. Yeah, they're kind of powerhouses, and also, we don't even know where all peatlands on the world are. There's just not really, um, like, a focus on finding out. There's, yeah, we only know a small amount. Um, specifically in, I believe it was South America, there is thought to be more, but have not been mapped anywhere. But yeah, so... An issue that is currently facing Dartmoor is that the peatlands are drying out. Um, so there have been efforts in the past to re-wet the bogs, um, which then would increase carbon sequestering, but also increase biodiversity in the area, assist with flooding, increase availability of safe drinking water, and help fires from breaking out across the moors. Notably, there was a huge fire in 2021, which I'm sure our guests could probably tell us more about, seeing it in the news and such. Um, but in 2021, there was a huge fire that broke out across the moorlands as a result of several, like, perfect conditions for fire, um, specifically dry winds due to the dry peatlands, um, an excess of millennia, I think is how it's said, which is a type of plant that it is hard to walk through, but it's kind of overtaking um, Dartmoor currently um, as, a as a result of, first, overgrazing by livestock, who the livestock favor heather in the area. So they ate a lot of the heather, and then that allowed the millennia to spread, um, and then cattle only like to eat millennia during like the early new growth months so once it's past that new growth it's not really a favorite food and sheep think it's icky they don't want to eat it <laughs> it has a tendency to grow out of control and take over a lot of the area um and it's a very dry sort of grass um and then there was also a hit to livestock with an outbreak of hoof and mouth yeah that's yeah yeah yeah, which then just had, you know, less livestock to try to eat this millennia. Um, and so it was, like, perfect uh, scenario for this fire to break out. Yeah, that like, more fires are, I don't want to say regular, but, like, usual. But the one in 21 was quite extensive. Like, it was, it was a bad one. <laughs> Mm -hmm. I mean, it's like you get all over the world, you get the wildfires are becoming more and more going outside of the ranges they usually have or being more intense, lasting longer, right? We see it in all sorts of places. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, California definitely has, uh, California, Australia, I mean, there's been a lot within the last few years. Yeah. And also in the UK, I mean, um, similar landscapes to Dartmoor, not quite the same, not quite as waterlogged, but uh, like the Lake District, um, Cumbria, places like that, um, there have been some really bad fires over the last couple of years that have um, just devastated the local um, ecology. So, yeah, it's a real problem. Part of my research into this um, revealed the interesting fact that um, uh, dried peat has um, roughly the same calorific value as, as coal. So if you um, if the peat dries out and then catches fire, there's a lot of carbon in there that, that can burn. And obviously that's really bad for global warming, but it also presumably means that it allows the calorific value allows it to burn really hot, which helps it to spread spread as well. So you don't need much fire to um, to, to get a really bad um, fire going that's, that's quite hard to stop. Yeah, there have been efforts to re-wet the moors, essentially, um, reintroduce a lot of the water that has since 
been dried out of them. Um, these plans are not popular with everyone. Um, they would have a huge environmental impact, be great for global warming, be great for helping against global warming. Um, but a lot of people argue that the environmental impact is being way prioritized over the cultural one, since these plans would make it harder for visitors to walk around Dartmoor, as we talked around, as we talked earlier, it can make the area quite dangerous for walking. Mm-hmm. Sheep would also be restricted to smaller areas to graze, which would impact farmers. Um, and there are concerns that future archaeological discoveries would be made more difficult to find once the bogs are re-wet. And yeah, so that's like an ongoing thing they're trying to figure out <laughs> whose plan essentially they're going to go with to uh, fix that. But yeah. Yeah. Hopefully it has the desired impact if it goes through. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Speaking of uh, people walking in the park, people enjoying the the space of the park, what Adam? I believe you have you have researched and experienced this. Would you like to to share a little bit more about what do people do in the park? I I yeah I my vast vast amount of experience with Dartmoor itself has been through this. Um, so every year, um, barring exceptional. Uh, reasons of weather or um, things like COVID, there is a challenge that is put on usually in the first weekend of May um, for young people to complete a hike around Dartmoor. And it's it's called the 10 Tours Challenge because you are supposed to hit 10 of the different tours, which are the granite outcroppings, as we mentioned earlier, as Alex detailed. They're the nice big stacked granite ones so you're supposed to hit 10 of those in a weekend and there are three levels of it you've got the 35 mile 45 mile and 55 mile and they're for like ages 14 to 15 16 17 and 18 to 19 so like that's sort of the level of age group we've got going out onto the moors walking these walking these tracks so that it like it started in 1960 by the British Army, but it's kind of it's still run by the British Army, but it has become such a bigger zeitgeist phenomenon in the southwest and the south of England that so many people started getting involved with it. In 2012, they actually restricted it to people only from the southwest because so many people were signing up that they couldn't guarantee um, safety, camping spots, things like that. So you would oh, tend wow. to. Yeah, you'd well. We tended to drive up on Thursday, set up camp at the army base in Oakhampton, which is just just to the north of Dartmoor, which is where everything started. On the Friday, you'd go through safety talks, um, equipment scrutineering. You'd then be given your route, which is here are the here are the hills you have to hit that is all you have and then you get the map you plot the full route so what is the best way to go from one to the next what is the safest routes what rivers do we have to cross where do we stop to get water and so on and so forth um, so of the three levels of it um, there there's 12 different 35 mile routes 10 45 and 4 45 so a total of 26 and they're all listed a to z so so people can see also you're you're sharing routes with other people but you're not necessarily going to be walking with them like you're mm. you're doing the same route but people walk faster than others people encounter issues some people will go will go left around this hill others will go right so even though you've got the same checkpoints it's still such an individual thing and you're put in groups of six so you have to be supporting one another. You're carrying all the tents you need, all the water equipment, all your own food for the two days. Which, again, when you're 14 is <laughs> quite an interesting thing to do. Yeah. Um, but we we trained for, like, months before that. Like, from January, we were doing 
small hikes, like at, um, at another moorland closer to where I live, rather than jumping straight to Dartmoor. So a couple small hikes around there, start building up your skills, your endurance, get good teamwork in place, then progress out onto the moors and start learning the lay of the land, the hills themselves, because some are like vertical cliffs one direction and nice smooth the other. So you'd plot to approach it from a southerly way or whichever way is best. So I did it twice in 2005-2006. of the teams in 2006 completed as a full unit. 17% on top of that completed with one or two people dropped out. And then everyone else couldn't complete because you're timed as well. Like if you don't get to a certain point by a certain time on the Saturday, you have to stop and camp there. And if you don't complete the rest of it the next day you're just pulled off the moor for safety because you can't do that. And then 2006, it was down to 52% completed as a full team with 29% with a few dropouts because the weather was horrific. Oh, boy. Like, as, as Alex said earlier, it's a... Or as we said earlier, it is a wet place. Like, it is... Because it's such a high geographical point, you have the full force of the Atlantic Ocean coming in rolling over and going, oh, here's where I'm dropping the water. <laughs> so it, weather would change on a dime, so you had to be prepared for that. But other years it's been like baking sunshine and people have been pulled off with like heat stroke and things. Yeah, you can't expect it to be decent-ish weather or sunny or rainy. You have to be prepared for every single eventuality out there. So Adam, do you mind if I ask, is there a, so you have to finish by a certain time um, and you have to do certain splits in certain times, right? Otherwise you're, you're disqualified, but is there a competitive element? Is there a, an overall winner for the team that, that completes it the quickest? It's, it's always stated that it's not a race. It's, it's you versus the more. Yeah. Um, but obviously some people are competitive. <laughs> um <laughs> But to prevent that, it's if you, when you get to your eighth checkpoint, you stop there on on day one. Like you can't go further than that. You have to camp at your eighth checkpoint to stop people from thinking, ah, we're just going to run, do everything, be finished in a day, because it's supposed to be experiencing it all and like the endurance of it, the being able to camp out there and and see what it's like but like there are records there for people who like the first team across the line is always like welcomed over and like walking down the hill towards like back because you start at the camp you finish at the camp so it's usually a big loop you do so coming back to it you've got like friends and family who've turned up waiting for everyone and they see you come over the hill start cheering while they try and work out who you are (laughs) and i mean even starting off you've got what 2000 odd young people in like a massive crowd and they announce the start of the thing with two cannons that they just fire like which is a good way to begin i suppose like get it off with a bang and then everyone just disperses into the directions that they've planned for themselves but then as uh like most of this is like handy because or most of this is done because the moor itself is under um, particular legal acts that allow um, it, like allow access for the purposes of like free roaming, for horseback, and for outdoor recreation. But there's some millionaire who's bought up a farmhouse in 2011 and has gone. People are camping on my land. I don't like it. I'm going to take this to the high court to try and try and restrict that and stop people camping on my land. And the argument that their legal team has put forward is that camping does not constitute outdoor recreation. Hard disagree. Wow. Which, Hmm. yeah, I can't think camping indoor is too common. Hmm. Yeah, fair. Yeah, like the environments act that 
allowed Dartmoor to become a national park had, as part of it, to promote opportunities for the understanding enjoyment of the special qualities of the national parks by the public, which allowing people to free roam, wild camp, is what that's kind of about. And it's all, it's all based off of an assumed right, because it never specific, as they say, it didn't specifically say that camping is allowed, but they said everything else here is allowed walking horse riding running over it roaming climbing bird watching etc 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 camping no so it, it's a very spurious argument in my mind but it puts things like the tentors challenge at risk it puts uh, it puts climbing at risk because you will have people who go climbing and then camp out while they're attempting things or as they reach the top of it again bird watching with things like the cuckoo with any of the other animals we have out there you will have people who camp out on like hike out to the middle of the moor set up a camouflage tent and just stay there for day two day week looking for these animals and people like this who come to the area and go no i'm i want my little plot of land and i'm going to fence it in are taking away from what has been here for 40 50 60 100 years and also yeah, it strikes that's... oh sorry sorry Ella. no go on ahead i was just going to say it strikes me that um i mean adam you're talking about the changeable weather and um i've been up there a few times um i haven't done the 10 tours challenge but um my my dad and my brother and me walked across the northern part um the sort of wilder part in um when, when i was about 10 um and we planned to camp but there was on on the first day we had to pitch our tent at like 4 p.m because the weather just uh kept closed in around us it started raining the visibility was about five meters even less and it wasn't safe to walk mm. and so obviously we'd gone out there with the purpose of camping but it strikes me that if you're kind of planning on walking across the moor even if you want to do it in a day and you don't plan to camp you you you'd be very uh, ill-advised not to take a tent or at least something that you can shelter in for potentially overnight or even longer because you don't know sometimes how long you're going to be stuck there. Yeah, like there, there is a ranger service, but I think there's eight of them. Like there are eight <laughs> rangers or ten rangers for the entire park. and That's amazing. So this guy is trying to keep people from camping... He was trying to keep people from camping on his land and that led to the government saying that that for the whole of Dartmoor camping didn't count or his argument yeah his argument was he didn't want people camping on his land so he tried to get the government he's trying to get a ruling on the National Park Act as to whether camping counts within that and this happened this was going through the courts middle of december and the ruling hasn't come out yet i think it's due at the end of the month so this is still undecided as of yet hmm. like there's so few places in the uk where you have such right to roam ability to free camp um have access to the commons that it would just be a massive hit to the cultural landscape. Yeah. I mean, I'm trying to think. I don't think we have anywhere like that in the U.S. It would really be taking away this this really unique and special aspect of of this area. And without wanting to go too much into the legal side, like English common law is based on precedent. So it's not just about this. I'm guessing it's not just about this farmer's, uh, this landowner's rights. If if he manages to win this case, then he sets a precedent that other landowners in Dartmoor or um, other parts of the country can say, well, they can point to it and they can say, well, this is the ruling. So we want it applied here as well. Yeah, exactly. That's where, that's where the worry is. Because I think the vast majority of Dartmoor is privately owned, but is uh, like open. It's not fenced in. It's not blocked off. Hmm. But it is all, all, almost all privately owned. And I think one of actually one of my favourite things is that the Dartmoor National Park Authority bought up some swathes of woodland, and then they bought a section next to it. But in doing so, 
they then technically owned a full patch of land that came with I don't think it was quite a lordship it might be like some noble title so the elected head of the Dartmoor National Park Authority is the steward for the like lorddom of this wood (laughs) of England what do you expect yeah so English (laughs) that is that's very funny yeah no that's that's honestly that's wild that it's a it's like a national park but so much of it is privately owned I don't think there's none of that here there's no um we don't have any laws about about like common land and commons and that sort of thing um but I guess it comes of of all our land being stolen <laughs> in the first place but yeah that's that's really cool and um I think that's about all we had to say about Dartmoor at least for now so uh I want to say thank you Adam and Alex for being on and sharing your own experience and knowledge of the park thank you for having us on Thanks for having us. Is there anything you'd like to plug before we go? Um, I wanted to plug um, a local charity we have. It was started locally, but it's become more of a national one. It's called Surfers Against Sewage. um, And you can find that at sas.org.uk. They're very um, based around ocean cleanup, uh, riverways, waterways. um, Like it's no longer just surfers and it's no longer just sewage but it's they do a lot of good work uh, nationwide and i think they do i think they're trying to go more internationally i might be wrong on that but uh like as a charity i think they do an amazing amount of work so just something extra for people to look up if they ever wanted to our next regular monthly episode will be going out in february we'll be talking about the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. As always, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at yellparkspod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter or Tumblr at yellparkspod. Yahoo! Yahoo!